Jesus got up and went away from there to Tyre, the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word every time we open it. We can't believe how rich it is and how many topics of life are introduced to us when we read a one verse or two verses or whether it's 25, it doesn't matter. He always has something to say and so we want to hear from you this morning. We want to hear the truths for our lives 2,000 years removed and understand how they apply to our lives. Help me to relay that to the church in a way that is pleasing to you and intended the way you originally designed it to be said. We look forward to our time of encouragement with one another and Build us up to be the people that you want us to be. Amen. Please be seated. Well, before we dive right into the meat of the passage, let me just give you the context um, surrounding what's going on here, because as you know at Genesis House, context is key or context is king. Two crucial events are going on here in the life of Jesus and his ministry. The first event occurs immediately before the healing of this woman's daughter. Jesus had just gone toe to toe with uh, the Pharisees over an issue of ceremonial cleansing. They had watched the disciples. Uh, eat food without washing their hands. And they wondered why Jesus would allow his disciples to do this because this was a defiling thing that they were doing. And it was important to be pure in their rituals before God. And Jesus' answer was super profound. He says, it's not what comes from outside of a man and goes into him that defiles him. It's what comes from inside of a man that goes out of him. And he talked about the heart and how it actually can defile us by the things that we say and the things that we do. And in doing so, Jesus also did something really remarkable. He also declared all foods to be clean. So Jesus was teaching his disciples two really important spiritual truths. Number one, there are traditions and rituals in people's lives that they think are really important to God that he couldn't care less about. Things have been handed out from your parents, uh, from your grandparents, your old pastors, the denomination you belong to. There are rituals and traditions in which you think are super important, and God knows they matter nothing to me unless your heart's right with me. The second thing he was teaching was that by declaring all foods clean, he was actually breaking down all the barriers that had restricted fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, of course, had... Eat, would eat unclean foods according to Jewish law. And he says all foods are clean. So he's, he's breaking down the fellowship barriers. 
So there's a really important story in this, that precedes this. But second, there's another important event in the ministry of Jesus that's really worth highlighting. It's situated between two feeding stories. Two feeding stories. The first one occurred in chapter 6, before this. It's the feeding of the 5,000 men, which would be more like probably 20,000 when you include women and children. So the feeding of them, and that was a Jewish feeding. These were Jewish people being fed. And he was obviously teaching them spiritual truths in that. But then after this story occurs a Gentile feeding. In chapter 8, we see the feeding of the 4,000. And it's not a Jewish audience here, it's a Gentile audience. So the Syrophoenician women's healing of her daughter occurs between a Gentile feeding and a Jewish feeding. And God is sandwiching this story in between the two. So this points to a second, another spiritual truth. He's showing that God's plan of mercy and salvation and his love for humanity is extending beyond the Jewish context. He's moving it into Gentile territory. And he, that, that's part of his overall uh, love for humanity. So because we have the two crucial events in Jesus' ministry having a Gentile flavor to them, and Gentile, uh, spiritual truths surrounding Gentile relationships, you would therefore expect to see a Gentile story right here. And that's exactly what we have in the healing of this woman, his daughter. Three references here point to the Gentile inclusion. Circle these in your Bible if you want. Notice in verse 24 that, they, that Jesus and his disciples go to the region of Tyre. The region of Tyre. That's Gentile territory. Secondly, notice in verse 26, she's from the Gentile, she's a Gentile of the Syro-Phoenician race. Again, two more references to non-Jewish people. So let me give you some background as to Jesus and where he was in the history of the region of Tyre. If you look on this map here on the PowerPoint, you'll notice where Galilee is. It's the only lake in this picture, just north of Decapolis. Now, Jesus has gone from there, near the Capernaum, sort of Bethsaida region you can see on the map. He's traveled north, uh, northwest to Tyre. Matthew actually says he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon because these two cities are often mentioned together uh, as one. But you'll notice where they're located. The, the border changes color. This is Phoenicia. It's the region, it's a region within the uh, country of Syria. That's why she's a Syro-Phoenician. She's a Syrian-Phoenician woman. So Jesus now has, has moved from Galilee and gone to Tyre and Sidon. Now, these obviously are, well, this actually today, if you wanted to know, is modern-day Lebanon, if you wanted to get a geographical understanding, who are today, today uh, Israel's enemies. But Mark doesn't give us this detail to really make a geographical distinction, as he does to more make a religious one. To make a religious one. You see, Tyre and Sidon, throughout the scriptures, are primarily seen as people in a country that were opposed to God and opposed to God's people. They were enemies of the Jews. The reason was is they were known for their idolatry and pagan practices. And it was actually their influence that solidified the worship of the god Baal in Israel that led to their downfall and destruction. It's worth looking at this passage together because these are just like three short sentences or whatever that you would just miss but don't realize the significance of how 
powerful these are in influencing what happened to Israel and God's judgment of them. So let me, let me show you this in a second here. The Israel, um, Israel has the king of Ahab in, in the power. Ahab's their king. And he creates an alliance with the Phoenicians by marrying one of the king of Sidon's daughters. Her name happens to be Jezebel. <laughs> Ahab marries Jezebel, Jezebel to create an alliance between northern Israel and, and Phoenicia because it's smart in terms of uh, having trade relations and keeping peace between the countries for military borders. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of uh, basically saying, I won't harm you if you don't harm me. The problem was Jezebel was a worshiper of Baal and was really committed to her worship of him. And so when she married Ahab, she brought that influence into the nation. And here's one of the saddest verses in all the scripture. Listen to this. Ahab went to serve Baal and worshipped him. And so he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Baal worship was already in Israel. Jeroboam and stuff, like these guys, they all had that in there. But it was Ahab, marrying of Jezebel, that solidified it in Israel. He built a house for him, he built an altar for him, and he built it in Samaria. And not too long later, in 722, God said, enough of you people, and Assyria, Syria comes in and wipes the nation out for their idolatry. So Mark wants you to understand this. Jesus and his disciples are in enemy territory. <laughs> They're different in ethnicity. They're different in their food laws. They're different in their religious beliefs. They're different in their cultural practices. And so let's pick up now what happens. There, there's a Roger, your brother from another mother. <laughs> Keep that in the sermon, okay, you don't edit that. So, so, and, uh, so Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives in Tyre. And Mark says there, when he got there, he entered a house. He entered a house. Again, don't miss the significance of him entering a house. Jesus has just declared, all food's clean. Thus negating food laws between Gentiles and, and Jews. And he's walking into a Gentile home now to, to obviously... Well, we'll get into why in a second, but he's there, okay? So, he's there in this home, and he's likely eating food and doing things with Gentile people. But he's gone there in hopes that he would escape notice. But it turns out, Mark says, he didn't escape notice. He didn't escape notice. As I was preparing, I was like, how did he escape notice? How did he not escape notice? He's in a new area. He's not ministering in Tyre and Sidon. His ministries in Israel, how did people know that he was even there? Well, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Just flip back a couple chapters and look at verse 7. This is kind of cool. The Bible often answers its own questions. <laughs> Mark 3, 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre, and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Look at verse 10. He had healed many, with the result that all who had afflictions pressed around them in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. So, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, people from Tyre and Sidon, a great number had come to see what he was doing. 
and witnessed miracles. Now whether this woman was one of the girls that happened to be there that day and saw what he was doing and thought, man, if he could ever come to my area, I have a daughter who's in deep trouble. Or she had heard about this Jesus being there because of other people who happened to be in Galilee back in those, in those week, earlier weeks and months. It's hard to know how she knew, but the point is, she did know. And so when she found out Jesus was there, due to, the deep dis- due to her deep despair, she rushed to see him. And her situation, church, was one of huge desperation. Huge desperation. Notice here that it says that she had an unclean spirit. Her daughter had an unclean spirit in verse 25. And when she came to him, she immediately fell at his feet. To have an unclean spirit, as you know, is to be demon-possessed. Now, how she got possessed, we don't know. How long she was possessed for, we don't know. We don't know any of these things. But Matthew is very helpful. He gives us one word that gives us a tremendous picture of what it was like for her. In Matthew 15, 22, he actually says she was cruelly possessed. Cruelly possessed. It's the same Greek word used in Matthew 17, 15. The exact same story of a young boy who was brought to Jesus who was also possessed. Now look at what, look at what Matthew says on the PowerPoint here. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son because he, see, he has seizures and suffers terribly. That's the same Greek word, cruelly. For he often falls into the fire and into water. Here's the point. What is this man's son going through under cruel possession? The kid is trying to commit suicide. He's trying to commit suicide. Every time there's a fire pit, he's throwing himself into it. Every time there's a, some kind of water, body of water, the child's throwing themselves into it. Furthermore, when Matthew and Mark record the event of this, this son, what's going on with this child, they give other descriptors. They said that the child was mute, so he couldn't speak. The child was having seizures, would throw himself to the ground, and would grind his teeth and foam at the mouth. This is what's going on in cruel possession in these stories. And we've seen cruel possession already in Mark 5 in last week's sermon, the legion at the tombs. Remember him? How violent he was? He, they were trying to bind him with chains so he wouldn't get to people. And he was a self-harmer. He would cut, cut with stones and gash himself. And he would scream uncontrollably and tear his clothes off. We understand already from Mark and Matthew what cruel possession looks like. So very likely this woman's daughter was going through similar, if not the same types of things. But further evidence of her desperation was how she approached Jesus. She fell at his feet in verse 25. This is a place of total dependence, a total brokenness, of total humility. And in verse 26, it says that she kept asking. She kept asking him to cast a demon out of her daughter. You know what's cool about Matthew's account here? He actually says that the disciples were so frustrated with this woman, and she was annoying them so bad, that they actually said to Jesus, can you send her away? She's, she's bugging us so bad with her persistence for your help. Can you just tell her to take a hike? 
But again, her situation was desperate. And she believed that Jesus was the only one that could help her. And man, I, 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 there was a lot more young, um, there was a lot more mothers in their church of young daughters in the first service. But there are still some here today. Let, let me just pick, paint this picture for you. According to the commentaries I was reading and stuff, and some of the people I listened to, a, a young, a child in this reference is probably under the age of 12. Okay? All of you mothers out there that have daughters, even your grandchildren, you know, if you're under 12 years old, could you imagine every time you went camping to Little Bow or things, and you're having a wiener roast and there's a fire, the constant worry that you would have that one of your children would just throw themselves in there randomly? Everyone's enjoying each other and having fun and you can never relax because you're worried about your kid, all this demon, like throwing your child into the fire? Could you imagine every time you go to a creek or you go uh, hiking and you come to a body of water when all the kids are playing and splashing about that you don't know if your child goes in there if they're ever coming up because they might drown? Could you imagine every night as you close the door to bed and, you, and, and how you'd be sleeping because you don't know when you wake up in the morning if your daughter's been gashing herself with rocks and stones and cutting herself in absolute horror? I hope this is gripping your heart to understand desperation. But don't miss the significance again of the context. Who does she trust in? Jesus. A Jewish rabbi <laughs> who's different than her in every way. Huge application for us, church. Who do we ultimately turn to in crisis? In times of deep need. When we're going through tough times in marriage, when we're going through tough times in, in parenthood, when we're going through conflicts with other people at work or in family, when we're struggling with personal things like addiction and whatnot, where do we turn? Many of you are going through things right now. Many of you were last year. Some will go through things this year. We learn something from this woman. In a time of deep need, she goes to a Jewish rabbi in, in, in desperation and is fully dependent on him in time of crisis. How he answers those prayers is up to him. But to go to him first, that's up to us. <laughs> James 5.13 says, If anyone among you is suffering, he should pray. And the Lord may use other people, other sermons, other passages uh, of Scripture, other scenarios to answer those prayers. But we need to give them first chance in the midst of crisis. Now, I did this last week with you. But I'd like to do it again this week. Let's pretend Mark ends there. And you know, you know everything you know about Jesus, his character, who he is, kind of pity he shows on people. His, you know, he extends grace to everyone. You know him well in terms of the biblical story. How would you expect Jesus to do, answer and what to do next, knowing everything you know about him? If Mark ended here, I'd tell you what to do. He'd say, he would heal his daughter immediately. She's fully dependent. She's crazy about him. Like she, she knows, she trusts in him. For sure, immediate healing. That's what you would do. I, I think that way. 
But look what Mark says. Verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Yikes. Not only does Jesus seem to lack compassion, he seems to be uh, derogatory in his comments. So how do we wrestle through this? How do we, what do we do with this passage? Well, Matthew's very helpful. Before this comment is made by Jesus, in verse 24 of Matthew 15, it says this. Jesus made the declaration that he was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So what Jesus was doing here by making this comment was he was illustrating he was illustrating a spiritual truth. The truth was he had come with a ministry priority. A ministry that was first and foremost to the Jews. Now it wasn't that Gentiles were excluded. Remember he said here, I've come first for the children. He didn't say, I've not come at all for the Gentiles. He said, I've come first. So there's a first and second priority system going on here. So again, it's not that Gentiles were excluded or, he, or they wouldn't or couldn't be shown mercy, but they were second in priority in terms of Jesus' time and focus. And we saw that theme last week in the healing of the demoniac. Remember, he gets healed and what's he want to do? Jesus, let me come with you. And he says, what? Nope. Why? Because Jesus' priority was the Jewish people, but he had nobody in the capitalist, which was Gentile territory. So he needed to leave a missionary on the east side of the Sea of Galilee to fulfill his purposes. So again, it's not that Gentiles were excluded, it's just that Jesus' priority was the Jews, and he wanted other people to take care of the Gentiles. But why the reference to dogs? Why go that far? Well, there are some that you will hear will teach this, that the Jews ref, um, often refer to Gentiles in that way. And the reason is, is because they're unclean people, or unclean, like scavenger dogs are unclean, and they eat unclean things. We've all seen dogs do gross stuff. <laughs> and therefore, Gentiles, in the same way, are like unclean. And so Jesus is only using a cultural reference that they're familiar with to, to, to talk about uh, distinguishing them between the two people groups. At the same time, however, they soften it by saying this. Because there's two Greek words for dog, that one's a mangy dog and a scavenger and one is a house pet, that Jesus is choosing the lesser here. In Greek, he's using the house pet term for dog. And so again, when you think of dogs in your own family, you love your dog. You don't hate your dog. The scavenger dogs, that they, like the coyotes, they stay outside, but your, your house pet, they come inside and they're loved by your family. So again, they, they, there's a, this thought within the Christian community that this is a term rec, uh, common to the culture, but Jesus is using the house pet version, not the derogatory version. Now, maybe there's a case for this, and there's merit to this, and I'm not here to debate that, because that's not the point of the passage. But here's what I do know about Jesus, and you know as well. We know he's in a home. Verse 24, he entered a house. <laughs> Whose house? A Gentile's house. What is Jesus famous for doing in his every other spiritual truth he ever teaches in the Bible? He always uses things and objects and things that are familiar to people that are around him to teach spiritual applications. Hence why he uses fig trees for spiritual opportunities. 
He uses vineyards to create spiritual opportunities of teaching. He talks about harvests and farming and seeds and soils. He always takes things that are near him and around him to create spiritual truths. He lived, he lived in our time and day, and he saw this sitting here like this as he was teaching. He might look down and go and start using an iPhone as an illustration. He just would. Or he'd see one of your leather coats and he'd start talking about how leather shrinks and you know, the new covenant can't fit in that covenant and all that type of stuff, right? Like he does these types of things. That's his way. So very likely, there's actually a family pet under the table as they're eating a meal. And he just says, listen, let me help you understand how this is going down. We're all familiar with that scene. So here's what's cool. Jesus, or the woman understood clearly what Jesus meant based on her response in verse 28. She answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. What's her response? One of tremendous humility. See, she understood that Jesus had a priority towards his own people. She didn't even dispute that. She accepted his ministry priority on his terms. And as a result, just like a dog who would never be expected to get the main course over the meal of a children. I mean, come on, would you ever feed your dog first over your kids? If you do, then we have some parenting things to talk about at Genesis House. <laughs> but um, none of us would do that. And yet she was willing as a Gentile to receive any leftover blessing from Jesus that Jews would not receive. Yes, your priorities to the Jews, Jesus. I get that, but I'll take any blessing. I'll receive that blessing, whatever you extend to me that the Jews are not having to offer. What an amazing statement. No offense taken. Didn't walk away frustrated. Didn't reject and argue with him what he had to say. She knew his plan for Israel and accepted it freely. And what does Jesus say about her? Look at verse 29. He said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out from your daughter. Matthew 15, verse 28 is more powerful. He says, oh woman, your faith is great. Your faith is great. You understand that I have ministry priorities and you accept me on my terms and you don't have a sense of entitlement. But you're willing to receive whatever I have to offer you. But you've also come to me fully dependent on me, believing I'm the, one you, the only one that can answer your situation. Man, <laughs> you're a woman of faith. Could you imagine if this was stated in this day? That kind of comment by Christ? I learned a new phrase at Bible study on Monday night that I'd never heard of before. And ironically, two days later, I heard it again at my house. You guys heard of the, the cancel culture? I just heard of it. The cancel culture. In other words, you can, you can be a, a, a tremendous character and do great things for society, even for the Lord. And you make one mistake and you just get completely blotted out of history and totally socially lambasted on media. That's why people rip down statues in the States and Canada. Famous people have done tremendous things. And they found out one's blunder in their past life and they're gone erased from history. Jesus would have been completely eradicated from our culture. Did you know that? By this statement alone. I've come to Okotoks with a ministry priority. 
You have come first to the children, not to the dogs. Out of here, Christ. Gone from our society. Cancel him out. <laughs> but he does it. And see what she does? She doesn't live in a cancel culture. She lives in an acceptance culture of his priorities and accepts him on his terms. So powerful. That's why she's a woman that God is willing to extend mercy to his daughter for. <laughs> One more lesson, though, before we end. I think it's worth talking about how God's plan of salvation and his offers of mercy um, have always a priority system in place of how he goes about saving. See, plan A was always for Israel to be the light to the world. Plan A was for Israel, the Jewish people, to be salvation to us, Gentiles. That was seen right from the beginning in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. So stop there. The Jewish race and Israel do not exist in this world. There is no Jew. There is no Israel. Abraham is called by God. He says, I want to make you as an individual into a great nation. Millions to come from your bloodline. He says, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great. I will be a blessing. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Every one of you in Genesis house right now that believes in Jesus Christ was blessed because of Abraham and the nation of Israel. He starts with one man, makes a nation. The nation was to be a light to us. Exodus makes that clear. I've called you to be a people for my own possession, Exodus 19, and to make you a priesthood. What do priests do? They proclaim God's truth. What happened? They fell in the wilderness in rebellion. Jesus comes, they went into exile in Babylon. They went to exile in Assyria. And then Jesus comes along and he proclaims them truth. And what do they do? They crucify him. Israel is no longer usable to God because of constant rejection in those ways. So what does God do? He says, I'm going to move to plan B. I'm not going to use the Gentiles to save the Jewish people. <laughs> Romans 11, 11. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Reference to Israel. Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because of the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much a greater blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I'm saying this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have. So I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be more, even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. God's reversed it. And now he's using us in a priority system of ministry. It's kind of cool to think about. I have to say this. I'm not, I didn't say this in my last but just so you know, Romans 9 through 11 is some of the most confusing language in all of the Bible. In fact, it's divided the church theologically into two camps about predestination and chosen stuff. Listen, that Romans 9 to 11 has nothing to do with the salvation of an individual and how God saves someone. He dealt with that in Romans chapter 1 through 8. He's dealing in 
chapter 9 through 11, with one question. In light of salvation being not through the law and through the life, uh, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ, what do we do with Israel as a nation, not as an individual, but as a nation who've rejected God? What do we do with the nation? Romans 9 to 11 is an explanation of what happens to the nation. Everything about hardening hearts, Pharaoh, the potter, the clay, all of it is all to do as a national issue, not an individual issue. He's dealt with individual salvation in 1 through 8. And the answer is this. Yeah, God has turned. He's not rejected his people completely. He hasn't rejected them completely. He's using the Gentiles now as his primary means of ministry. But Israel's not forgotten. Israel, one day, he says in chapter 11 after this, will eventually come as a nation to be some, come to believe in the Messiah. It's that Romans 9 to 11 is theologically so screwed up because people don't understand that Paul is dealing with the national issue of Israel and not an individual means of how God saves someone. Esau, Esau I hated, but Jacob I loved. When you go back and look in Genesis, he says to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. Two nations are in your womb. Anyway, I had to say it because I don't get a chance to talk about this very much, but this passage has brought it out. Okay, so what do we learn? Number one, God's offer of mercy has no ethnic, cultural, or religious boundaries. He's willing to extend physical healing to this woman's daughter. And ultimately, the story is situated in, a, in, in, in the whole book of Mark that Gentile inclusion in terms of spiritual salvation is offered as well. It's a, bigger, it's a story of a bigger picture. The crazy thing is the disciples are saying to Jesus, Get rid of her! She's a pain! Get her out of here! But you know what, church? We do have Syrophoenician type women in our lives. I, you know what? I can prove it to you. Every one of you has a neighbor on your left and has a neighbor on your right. Who's your favorite? God's offer of mercy has no ethnic, cultural, religious boundaries. Second one all of you have family, relatives. Who are your favorite? When Christmas comes, whose house do you really want to be for a dinner? And whose do you not want to be at for dinner? God's offer of mercy has no ethnic, cultural, religious boundaries. As Gentiles, we're called to be lights <laughs> to the world. Man, I hate it when God's word convicts me. Because I have to wrestle with the same problems as you do. But I don't want to be like a disciple. I don't want to say to Jesus, get rid of the neighbor on my left. I don't want to be them. Number two. Within God's plan for the world of salvation. Let me rephrase that. Within God's plan for the salvation of the world. He has a history of targeting a people group to accomplish that end. Abraham. I chose you. So that nations will be blessed in you. Israel. I've chosen you so that you will bless the world. Okay. That's all failed because of Israel's rejection. Gentiles. I'm choosing you to be a minister to the Jewish people. And I think by application, extend even to in our small pocket groups. 
Or He can target you or me as a family and, and, and have us go after certain people as well. Anyway, it's, it's really cool how God works. And finally, a lesson on faith. In times of great need, Jesus wants us to turn to Him in full dependence. She was persistent. She was humble. She was broken. She was going through a personal crisis. As a Gentile woman who knew the, the racial, ethnic, religious boundaries, turned to a Jewish rabbi in a time of need. We are to turn to a Jewish rabbi in the term of need, time of need. And God has a pattern of responding to those who are in crisis. We just have to willing to go to Him first. Amen.